Our reading this morning is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, and you can find that on page 1041 in the Church Bibles. Luke 10, and we start at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, we're in the middle of us, as Peter said, we're in the middle of this series looking at the Gospel of Luke. And uh, last week I talked a lot about the message of Jesus, that actually we have something to give, we have something to bring, we have something to share, and it's good news, and do we find the opportunity to do it? And actually, funnily enough, this week I've had loads of opportunities to talk to non-Christians about Jesus in all sorts of different ways. Um, Not necessarily someone coming to me and saying, Tim, how can I be saved? That would be great, wouldn't it? Then you've got to think, well, if someone came to you and said that this morning, what would you do? What do I do? You know, that kind of thing. But I'll give you a number of stories with some of the people, some of the local businesses around I've been visiting, who kind of just started conversation. Actually, ironically, because you're a vicar, it's a little bit easier for me than it may be for you, because actually, when someone actually stops, you know, just answering questions, and they get to the point where they say, so, what do you do? So, well, I'm a vicar. Suddenly, all sorts of interesting conversations end up. 
Uh, one of the blessings, as well as talking to someone some of the local businesses and being able to pray for them, um, and actually say, well, actually, I can pray for you. I can't fix your problems, but I can point you to someone I know who cares. Uh, slightly more amusingly, uh, yesterday, after about a five-year lull in attempting to play golf, um, I decided the moment was right to rekindle that particular life. Someone very kindly decided to walk with me uh, as I zigzagged my way around a golf course. Beautiful, stunning day, wandered around, all good, uh, particularly once I'd turned up to the wrong golf course initially, but that's another story. Uh, and anyway, got there, had a round of golf, and I'm finished the round of golf, say, great rounds, all good, in the car park. Go to my car, buzz my car, no, no power, nothing's moving. So I'm going, oh. it's my key fob, it's gone out of power. So I tried again, nothing happened. I've got a little Skoda, don't judge me, a little Skoda, yellow Skoda Citigo. And actually, it's still got a key that you stick in a lock. It's not just all automated. I thought, this is good. I'll sort it, key in the lock, open. Realize, actually, the car's gone dead. The car's come completely dead. And uh, so I think, right, okay, what do I do? So if you don't quite know what you're doing and you're not very practical, which I'm not, you phone your wife. Uh, so you phone my wife, who then gave me some advice, none of which was I'm coming to rescue you. Sorry. Uh, with that, that kind of there. The second question, well, phone the AA. That's why we do it. Phone the AA. And when they're phoning the AA, one of the things that uh, the things you realise this is that, sorry, this is, doesn't show me in a very good light. Is you phone the AA and think, right, I'm in Bath. I'm in a beautiful, it's a beautiful evening, sun's shining. I'm in a car park of a, a fairly smart golf club. What do I say to the AA man? You know, do I put on a voice for a 20-year-old, 21-year-old woman who has three kids in the back of their car and say, you know, I'm really a broken down and it's terrible. Uh, at that moment, that thing did come to mind because you know the AA man will turn up within 15 minutes. And if you say, well, I'm a 50-year-old gentleman in a car park of a smart golf club in Bath, have that conversation. Say, well, sir, we'll be with you in two and a half hours. You say, okay. So, do that. Uh, and then, okay, settle, go into the bar, and then have a delightful conversation with Jenny Griffiths' son, who is in the bar, and kind of um, been able to catch up with him a little bit. Then I have a little sit and a pray, and eventually, along the line, um, the, AA man, the AA man called Joe comes along. And he sits, and he, he, people, you know, AA people don't tend to show a lot of interest in what you do. And he turns around and he says, what do you do? I say, well, I'm a vicar. I said, oh, you're a vicar? My dad was a vicar. I said, oh, really? Anyway, we have a long conversation that starts to talk about life and faith and the fact that he no longer goes to church, but his wife goes to church, his kids go to church, and why he doesn't go to church. I said, you know, it's funny. About two weeks ago, I prayed for the first time in about 10 years. I said, well, why do you do that? He said, well, you know, life throws tough things at you, and it gets to you eventually. Well, can I pray for you? Yeah, that'd be lovely. Pray for him. And as we're going up the, the Lansdowne Road, eventually finding, he, I have to deliver my car eventually somewhere. He gets it going, but he gives me a lift. He said, well, do you know what? He said, and, and I realised, you know, how much progress you make in these conversations. Uh, you realise, he said, you know, because I've helped you, Vicar, I know I'm going to heaven. Just a little touch. Any of you want to take that on board this morning? I think that's the way to go theologically, personally. Anyway, let's get back to Scripture. Uh, okay. So we're looking at this Gospel of Luke, 
And we looked last week about sharing the good news, that we can have a message, but there's something about having our hearts right. And today's passage helps us to think about that a bit more fully. But those of you who've been around a while will know, and particularly if you live in the city or you're around the city fairly often, if I put these images up, a man who lay dead in his flat for three years, a beggar on the street, people in Africa or wherever else it is in the world who have no food, or our world consumed by plastic. Seriously, just take a moment. What goes on in here when you see any of those images? Some of you may be moved by some of those images. Some of those images may not move you in any way whatsoever. We're bombarded by images. Do we have compassion fatigue? Don't feel able to respond. If you go on one, Brian. Oh, is it the one after that? Oh, did I take it out? Is there one more in between? Yeah. You don't need to go very far in our society to read the news or to see stuff online or speaking generationally to realise that one of our biggest problems, one of the biggest challenges in our culture is that of loneliness. I've talked about this before, but Britain is dubbed as the loneliness capital of Europe. It's more of a challenge to us in, e- in England in Britain than it is in Europe. We're less likely to know our neighbours, less likely to have deep, dependable friendships than our European counterparts. And this isn't just a plague for the elderly, actually it's particularly also challenging for the young. They're actually finding it really difficult. So why is it it's easy to draw simplistic conclusions, but some of the things might be this, in our contemporary society, where we're driven by economic and individualism, social individualism, where technology and the market drive us. The very concept of family and society is squeezed and squashed, leaving so many people isolated, even when on the surface you couldn't imagine that that person would be someone who feels lonely. Rather than living in healthy relationships and the company of others, actually they feel isolated and they may actually be isolated. Actually, that is part of the culture we live in. So let's quickly look through our passage this morning. So if you have it in front of you, you might find that helpful. Uh, When Jesus, so Jesus was asked by a religious teacher, he's actually a lawyer and an expert, what's at the heart? What's at the heart, says his lawyer, the best way to live? How do I live eternally? Remember Jesus, who was, uh, for Christians, this view of Jesus is that Jesus, who was one of the smartest people, probably the smartest person who'd ever lived, gave us a simple command. Do this one thing. 
says Jesus to this lawyer. The lawyer says it to him and Jesus concurs. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. Jesus says it's love. Love is is the essence of Christianity. God is love. This is a distinctive understanding of Christians that's different from the other different religions uh, all around the world. When you look through history, through all the different types of religions, you see that people have portrayed of, on the idea, that even those who have an idea of God, they've portrayed, projected all sorts of ideas of values and attributes and the things on who God is. The vast majority of Muslims, other than those in the mystical Sufi tradition, would say, God, he's just. God is just, he's merciful. He's maybe most gracious. He's omnipotent. But they wouldn't say God is love. Buddhists would say mostly he's enlightened. God's wise. But they wouldn't say God is love. Even Jews, reading just the Hebrew, the Old Testament bit of the Bible, would say that yes, God is loving, but they'd say it just less strongly than the fact that God is good, God is just, and God is holy. For many Jews, love sounds so sentimental, such a sentimental thing. But Jesus says love is what life is all about. Love is what God built us to be and to do. So how, go, how do we love God with all our being, with all our very being, and also love our neighbours? Does it matter this morning? I wonder whether it matters to you this morning whether you love God with all your being or whether you love your neighbour. I don't know whether that matters to you or not. One of the things in the last um, period of time, we've partnered with Genesis, with the Gateway, uh, with the gateway Building and with that uh, serving the Snow Hill community. But the passage that's the heart of the vision of Genesis is this passage. It's about loving your neighbour. It's about loving your neighbour, being a good neighbour. So Jesus affirmed the lawyer's knowledge. You see this it in this exchange. It's a really interesting exchange. Even though the lawyer was looking to trap Jesus, Jesus, I'm in total agreement with you. But Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't just stop with a kind of theoretical conversation about what's the heart of life and what's the meaning of life. He pushes way past trying to find the right answers in our heads and urges the lawyer to act, to do something. Jesus says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. So how do we love God with our whole beings? The lawyer would know that if he wanted to fulfill the law, because actually he's an expert in the law, this meant he would need to love perfectly. Only perfect love would do to fulfill the law for a legal expert. So everything in our thoughts, with our actions, with what comes out of our mouths and with what we do, with the time we use, all of those kind of things matter if we're to love perfectly. And actually instinctively when we talk about that and when we work through those kind of implications of what the radical nature of God's love is, we sit and think, Do you know, wouldn't it be wonderful to be part of a society like that? But actually we also know, for most of us, that's not our experience.
the great preacher uh, Jonathan Edwards at the centre of the Great Awakening revivals in the 1700s wrote in one of his, his books that a real Christian loves God for who he is. A true Christian has grasped that it's loving God for who God is. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say that? He says that because for most of us, when we're getting interested in who God is, or even when we get lulled into a relationship, we, we come into a relationship with God and we get lulled in our discipleship to thinking that actually God is there to fix my problems. I just, God is my problem solver. Surely that's all God is. It's so really, my relationship with God boils down to the fact that I'm feeling powerless. God, I need your power. So, or actually I'm feeling guilty because I've treated people really badly or I've done some unethical things or I've done a whole load of other stuff. I did some things 50 years ago that I've never properly repented of and it continues to leave me a life of shame and guilt that I've not got free of. God, make me feel a little bit better about myself. Give me some mercy. God, give me some mercy, God. Surely you can give me that. Or maybe actually you're at a place where you know you're at the bottom and you need some provision in your life. You know, God is going to fix it for me. You know, just pray to God. He's going to answer my prayers. That's it. I've seen, actually, interestingly enough, I've seen all sorts of people who've had their prayers answered in the most miraculous ways over my life. But they then just walked off and done their own thing. Walked away from the very hand who provided for them. The very hand who held them. The reason being why? Because actually all we do is we turn to God to be our fixer. We're not loving God for who he is, we're loving him for what he does for us. Because it's all about us. To get the right fix from him. To heal us, provide for us rather than actually to enter into a relationship with who God is, for who he is. And Redwood says the way to love God for himself with all our beings is only possible for us if you believe the gospel. It's only possible if you say, Lord, the reason I love you is for who you are, the reason I can love you for who you are is for who you are and what you've done for me too. I can't use you to get my own way I can't use you to do what you want to do, what I want to do. You've given everything for me in the gift of Jesus. Then the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. You have given me life itself, and that's mine. You've lived the life that I was called to live, and you've died the death I was called to die because of my sin, so that I can have life in all its fullness. That's what you've done for me. Now I can gaze on you with grateful joy because I've received that life, received you for who you are. I love you. I want to be likely you simply because of who you are. And that's the thing that changes our lives and gives us the love that Jesus is talking about for God, our neighbours. Human love, however great it is, will never get us there. Anybody who spends a lot of time in our society knows that it's, in, it's actually really key for us as people to love our neighbours at the heart of who we're called to be. But in order for us to get to that place, we just like the lawyer, we need to know, okay, 
so I can love you, God? How do I love my neighbour? Who exactly are we supposed to love? And what does it look like to love our neighbour? I think I might have said this before. I meet many people who tell me that um, God, very confidently, that God has provided them you know, a job or a home or maybe even someone to live their life with. But actually, don't mean many people who say, do you know, God has given me this community where I live, the people to live with. God has given me this community of people at work, at home, in my leisure, in church. And I see that as God's gift. He's given me neighbours to enable me to bless. I wonder whether we live like that, we think like this. To illustrate it, Jesus tells a story in which he blows apart the definition of loving our neighbours. We looked at this briefly a couple of summers ago and shows the love God calls Christians to. Jesus tells this famous story. Most of you know it, like the back of your hand probably. It's a story of a Samaritan who finds a Jew who has been beaten and robbed on a road. The Samaritan stops. The Samaritan gets his hands dirty. The Samaritan puts aside his own schedule, his own plan, and tends to the person who's suffering. He takes care of him. He gives him medical care. He gives him friendship. He gives him financial support. The equivalent, we're told, through the, all the writings, two months' rent. He takes him to an inn, makes sure he's recovering there, says he will pay extra if necessary, and he comes back for him. Do we grasp the magnitude of what this Samaritan has done? Do we grasp the magnitude of what he's done? There's a lot of speculation, and many of you will have heard many sermons on this topic, but there's also lots of speculation when you read the commentaries about the motivation of the priest and the Levite as they pass by. But one of the points that's not often talked about as I was reading through this again and again over the last few weeks is this. Actually, the point is, and we often criticise the person who essentially was mugged, is this. Actually, the road was dangerous. It was a dangerous road. It's a little bit like stopping in the part of the most violent in a city suburb of, I don't know, wherever else you've got in your mind. You know, you're at three o'clock in the morning, there are no street lights, and when you're in that kind of place, you don't stop. You keep moving. Even if you're in a car, you keep moving. You keep, you're anxious, you're concerned, you're out of your comfort zone, but you keep moving. The priest and the Levite go by thinking, there are robbers here. There must be robbers here. This is the kind of place I know by reputation, but also by the sight of this man in front of me where people get beaten up and robbed. They weren't sure, maybe. I wonder what they were thinking. They weren't sure, could I save this man anyway? Maybe he's dead. I couldn't save him. I couldn't do anything practical to help him. If I stop here, if I take time, if I get my hands dirty, I may get robbed too. Both of them walk by, seeing the size of the challenge. Both of them walk by in the context that they're placed in, even though both of them themselves are walking down the same road. However, this Good Samaritan, as Peter alluded to the fact that we often call it the Good Samaritan, takes his life into his hands to stop and help. 
He stops. He simply stops and helps. You have to remember here, as also Peter alluded to when he's starting this, that not only is the Samaritan risking his own life, getting his hands dirty, destroying his schedule, giving the most concrete and expensive and costly kind of help in a very practical way, but the Samaritan is doing it to a sworn enemy. The Samaritan is doing it to the sworn enemy. That's the heart, the point of this passage. The Jews and Samaritans were tremendous enemies. We know from history the worst thing a Jew could call a person was a Samaritan. It was like a curse on them. There was that kind of hatred. Jesus is saying this. He's saying the heart the mark of a heart that's been touched by the grace of God will inevitably lead to acts of compassion to the neediest, to the most broken, and even to the most grumbly and ungrateful. The kind of person who's the most furthest away from you socially, demographically, physically, in every other way. That's at the heart of the grace of God. Now, there's a little bit of troubling thought. If you're following the logic of this and you've followed this before, one of the things that smiled when I was reading about this is that if you just take this to its natural conclusion, you might be sat there thinking, okay, well, the logic then is that basically heaven is filled with social workers. The rest of us are in a bit of trouble. You know, people who practically help the most broken If you were a social worker, you can feel a little bit smug this morning, but that's kind of maybe where you are. But how could that be? How could that be? Imagine this. Maybe just this simple illustration is a way of looking at it. Actually, interesting, we've got two plants either side of me. Imagine there are two trees, one either side of me here. On the left, this tree, you can use your imagination as a puff tree, and it's full of leaves. Leaves everywhere, lots of green, lots of life. But imagine this tree over here has literally no leaves on it at all. It's literally just... um, Skeleton. Skeleton. I am not into gardening. Uh, uh, It's literally just a trunk. That's the word I was looking for. Literally just a trunk of tree, but no life on it at all. It's absolutely barren. Well, which tree is alive? Of course, it's this one. This one's alive, that one's dead. Why? Is it the leaves that give that life? No, it's not, absolutely not the leaves that give it life. It's the tree itself that has life. And Jesus talks about the way in which we treat the neediest people and people of other races, other cultures, other types of people from different parts of society. And the way that you treat what would classically be seen as your enemies will show whether you've grasped the glorious nature of the gospel of Jesus. Whether that grace has got hold of you and shaping you and molding you. This is apparently a true story. An old woman Uh, who had no children, she never got married, had no children, she had no husband, but she was extremely wealthy, she'd been very successful, she'd inherited a lot. Uh, But her only heir in her extended family, she had one nephew. 
And she really didn't know what kind of man her nephew was. She thought, I'm incredibly wealthy. What's going to do with my wealth? Uh, and whenever she met her nephew, her nephew was charm itself, absolutely delightful, wonderful, warm, full of conversation, kind of person you loved being with. <coughs> but at the back of her mind, she was also conscious that she didn't want to leave all her money to a scoundrel or to a selfish person. So one day, she literally dressed up as a homeless person. This, isn't, this was in the States, by the way, uh, as a homeless person. And she sat on the doorsteps of this nephew, dressed, made herself unrecognisable, and sat on the doorsteps of the townhouse in which uh, her nephew lived, and to watch how her nephew would treat her. Actually, he treated her incredibly rudely. He treated her coarsely. He threatened her. He abused her. Then... She knew what he was really like. Jesus said to the lawyer, you want to know what kind of love the Father requires? Here it is. Anybody of us this morning, any of us this morning can love people who are like us. Any of us can love people who are similar to us. Similar in background, similar interests, similar in kind of where we come from, our view of life, our type of personality. Because actually, it doesn't cost a lot to love people like you. In fact, you could argue it costs you virtually nothing at all. The thing is, anybody can love people who are like them. But unless your heart, your life, has been so radically changed, unless real love is growing in your heart, because you've seen who Jesus is and what he's done for you, that actually you've received his salvation, so actually you've nothing to pay, you'll never experience a love like this. In the end, Jesus says, now who is the hero of this story? The expert in the law has to say, the one who showed mercy, the Samaritan, the one I hate the most, the one who's furthest from me. Jesus says, go, go, and do likewise. Love your enemies. What's Jesus getting at? He's trying to say, here's the sum of it all. Unless you've been overwhelmed and convicted by the magnitude of the love God requires, what perfect, true, godly love looks like, you will never be humble enough to receive the love he offers in the gospel. Unless you've grasped the magnitude and the greatness of God's love for you, you won't be humble enough to realize how far you fall short and how much you need his love at the heart of the gospel if you came here this morning, if you came along this morning and you think maybe you've been a Christian a while, maybe you're still thinking about whether you're a Christian and not sure, maybe you're just weighing things up, but actually predominantly your predominant view of Jesus is that you think Jesus is a teacher, a little bit like this lawyer in this story, who's good to give you advice to help you justify yourself. Notice in the, script, in the passage how the lawyer talks about that you know that you will be incapable of the kind of love that this passage talks about. See, the thing is this, before you can become a good neighbour, you need to be a good neighbour yourself. Before you're a good neighbour to others, sorry, you need to become a good neighbour yourself. You need Jesus to neighbour you. See, Jesus is the good Samaritan, you see. 
We're the ones lying in the road. We're the ones who are bloodied and bowed and beaten. And Jesus comes along and gives us everything necessary, his whole self, to bring us back to life. Until you see Jesus as a good Samaritan, you'll never be able to be the good Samaritan to other people too. I wonder this morning whether many of us who've been Christians many years, and I include myself in this, and there's many temptations in this passage that Jesus shatters. We can recognize that a lot of us are in this kind of condition. So we know this stuff in our heads. You know, we know this is what this story, this is one of the best known stories in the Bible. But actually it's not really, honestly, exploding in our lives to make a difference. It's not exploding in our hearts to propel us out, to go and reach out and touch the people God calls us to touch. You know, there's lots of people, there's amazing work all around the city of Bath with all sorts of different, um, different agencies, different charities. And actually lots of people do get to a place where they get burnt out, caring for people who are incredibly challenging and difficult, need lots and lots of care. But unless there's a continual re-grasping, a continual awakening of the glory of what Jesus has done for us, unless that's continually exploding like an engine in our lives. We won't love like Jesus. You know, I'm not a, um, an engineer or anything, but an engine, someone tells me, uh, is this. It's literally a ton of little explosions. Little spark plugs creating explosions in the chambers, making the pistons go. Explosion after explosion after explosion. When you worship, when you pray, when you spend time with God, these tiny little explosions start happening in your life as you experience the love of God afresh. And that's the, the love that will enable you to love like Jesus. Anyway, this morning that we'll be energized or strengthened to kind of love like Jesus loves. To love like the world needs that God calls us to, that, like, that we want to be able to be like the Good Samaritan, but find, for whatever reason, unable to do it ourselves, is to constantly have the life of God, those little explosions exploding in our heart, in the realizing, the experience, the extraordinary nature of the love of God that changes everything within us. That's the only way that we'll constantly find the strength and the power and the energy to, come to continue to walk the way God has called us to walk in love for others. Therefore, this morning, my prayer is that the glory of Jesus would dawn on each one of us again and again, that you will be merciful, even as he is merciful to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you know each one of us this morning. You know the state of our hearts, of our lives, of our minds. But I want to recognize this morning, Jesus, you are the perfect teacher. And we want to listen to you.
And for some of us this morning, we might need to take a moment just to recognise that we know this stuff in our heads, but we're not there. And we just need to be able to come to God again and say, Lord, I want to be that person. Forgive me for prioritising everything else. And I turn afresh to you. I repent and I turn afresh to you this morning. May I experience your love afresh in my own heart, in my own life, to enable me to go and love like Jesus loves. And there may be some people here this morning who need to take a step towards loving Jesus for who he is, not just for what you want him to do for you. That you today you need to take a step of faith towards God. So I pray, Father, you would enable those people this morning who know that they are far from you or away from you to take a step of faith towards you, to make Jesus their saviour and their Lord, and that you give them a courage to take that step of faith today. And probably for all of us, we're challenged by the nature of the height, breadth, depth, length of God's love and the unconditional nature of it. We know deep down we're not loving like the Good Samaritan. We maybe got ambivalent about the needs we face, resentful, bitter, unforgiving. Or we've become full of self-pity because our own needs have not got met. And we need to ask God, would you come afresh, Holy Spirit? Would you pour your love afresh into our hearts? by your Holy Spirit. Would you spark our, the engine of our lives into life again, to love like you love? In Jesus' name, amen.